running a small business can be tough. I mean, you're not just the CEO, you're also the marketing, the finance manager, and everything else in between. Technology, however, and digital tools can play a big part in taking on some of these tasks, giving you that much-needed headspace to focus on running your business. But it's hard to know where to start, which tools are right for you, how do you go about integrating them, and when is the right time to make the investment. MasterCard's Strive UK programme has been set up to make it easy for small business owners to access the support needed to digitise, whether that's incorporating accountancy tools or new digital payment methods. Through free guidance, helpful tools and personalised one-to-one mentoring, Strive is empowering small business owners across the UK to succeed. For more on how Strive UK could help your business, visit mastercard.co.uk slash strive. Okay, here's the show. Before we start, I just want to flag that this episode contains a conversation about body image and eating disorders, which might not be appropriate for everyone. So listener discretion is advised. A movement for change is first sown in gossamer threads. It might be a moment of new connection, a tiny shift in perspective, or the realisation that something familiar can be reimagined in a completely different way. Beautiful misfits are constantly embodying these micro-moments of change. They push boundaries and question the status quo. And we can all make the decision to create change. All we have to do is take that imaginative leap. Ultimately, however, it starts within ourselves. As the great poet Rumi once wrote, yesterday I was clever, so I wanted to change the world. Today I am wise, so I am changing myself. Rumi was writing and thinking in the 13th century, but great truths are impervious to time. For me too, change started inside myself. And once you realize this and make the choice, it begins to flow outwards in your actions and behaviors. You learn that you can really be the change you want to see in the world around you. And if enough of us make that choice, the threads will start to cohere into something even bigger and more powerful. I wonder though, if people sometimes feel overawed by the notion of creating change around them. It isn't, however, the preserve of an intellectual elite. It's within the grasp of each one of us. That's the power we all have. Sometimes the change we manifest impacts our immediate world, at others, a much larger part of it. My guest today, Jasper Conran, forged a huge shift in his chosen industry, fashion. Born into the glittering Conran dynasty, his father Terence was a legendary designer, restaurateur, retailer and writer. His mother, Shirley, an author whose name was known worldwide. It must have felt like a tough act to follow. But aged just 15, Jasper decided to carve his own creative path in fashion and he moved to New York to study design. At 19, he founded his own label. He dressed Bianca Jagger and was famously worn and adored by Princess Diana. Then, in 1996, he made a decision that would transform the industry. While designer collaborations today are, well, almost mundane, it caused a huge stir when the man, Jasper, decided to go into partnership with Debenhams in 1996. Back then, 
designer fashion was elite. It was the preserve of the few. And to keep it elitist, one had to preserve one's designer's name. But Jasper's decision to partner with the high street parked a critical tipping point. In that relationship, eyebrows were raised. And suddenly any woman could wear high street clothes designed by a luxury designer. And that was huge. It democratised fashion and Jasper once said, I want everyone to have a share. And change, whether big or small, is at the heart of what beautiful misfits aspire to. We don't accept the status quo. We want to change it. I'm Mary Portas, and this is The Beautiful Misfits. Welcome, Jasper Comran. Hello. Did you like that? I'm really revelling in it. <laughs> well, it's, it's very difficult when you do try and write these monologues. And, of course, having known you since we were 20-somethings... Yes. <laughs> I also, you know, wanted to make sure that I was paying homage to the journey, which I think is deeply interesting and deeply important, yeah. your journey. So... For me, I guess the start here is acts of defiance in order to find your creative and personal freedom. You know, sometimes you have to go against the grain of family or wisdom or your industry to be great. And, and you know, I feel that you did that. But take me back to your formative years. You were the product, as we talked about, of two extraordinary high-profile people, designer Terence Conran and Superwoman, was your mother, was often referred to, bestseller Shirley Conran. But your parents separated when you were one. So where were you? Tell me about those years where you physically lived, who you were with. I went to live with my grandmother in Portsmouth, my mother's mother. And I suppose that I was there with her for about three years. My mother, in the meantime, was single, without a job, without a home, without her children. Um, How did that happen, though, Jasper? So that's pretty big. I think that she and my father fell out mm. and she left. I think that she found life untenable with him. I wasn't really there, so I can't <laughs> fill in the details. But from my point of view, I went and had a very happy life with my grandmother until... I was about four, and then I went back to my mother. So did your mother come and visit you when you were in Portsmouth? I mean, do you remember these formative years up until you were four? I remember quite well, actually. I don't remember my mother so much, but I'm sure she did come and visit. I mean, I just remember my granny, really. Mm. You were happy? Very happy. She was a wonderful granny. And then your mother comes and gets you, and, mm. and had she remarried by this time? Yes, somebody who was actually working for my father. <laughs> That's quite strange. And your siblings arrived then, did they? My brother. Sebastian. Sebastian's so my you... elder brother. Oh, he's your elder brother. So he yeah. obviously went with you then to your grandparents. I think that he spent a lot of time with my father's mother, whilst I've spent all the time with my mother's mother. Yeah. I mean, you, your brothers, you're separated. That's a pretty big thing. Yeah, there were times when we were together that I wish it had gone back. Mm. <laughs> we're very close then. Yeah, but you do argue that age, don't you? Yeah. My gosh, my brothers and I used to argue terribly, but deep love and that. And you're very close mm. now as a family. I very, think. very close, yes. So you've got Indeed. Sebastian, you... Tom, Tom, Sophie and Ned. And I go back to little Jasper... 
who's now four and moved in with mum. And then you were sent off to boarding school. Yes. Mm, seven and a half. Right. Mm. Do you believe in boarding school, Jasper? I think that boarding school for some people mm. is terrific. For others, I think it's absolute hell. And I, I have to say I, I was one of them. You know, putting a child into an environment which is all about maths and soccer and things that are alien to that child, why would you do that? I had a big struggle with that because I was clearly young, little, effete, fat, artistic child who had really no place to be there in that environment. And it wasn't a sympathetic place to be, I can tell you, in those days. I'm sure it's different now, but... Um, and so how did you feel? What do you remember from that? Um, lonely, miserable, and bewildered, really. There were some really lovely teachers I had. I want to make sure that I say that because there were some you know, lifesavers there, but it wasn't an environment that I should have been in, I don't think. When we talk about misfits, we look at the societal norms that we all are born into, which are, you know, society, how it's structured, well mm. before we were even thought of to come on the planet. Mm. Uh, you know, mostly when we look at the society today, it's a patriarchy and it's about individualism and it's about the, the fit, isn't it? And mm. masculinity being through sport. Like well, talk, yeah. Yeah. And there you were in there. How did you, because this is where I find often when I speak to, to people, that the pain that they go through within that time is where they actually feel the light coming through because they have to move and shift into another dimension in order to survive. Mm. Where did you shift to, Jasper? I mean, I survived initially through reading and drawing. Those were my sort of survival techniques. And that was lucky. It was very lucky that I loved to read and that I was allowed to read when I wasn't being put in the goal on <laughs> hideous, <What>? freezing, cold, sodden fields. <laughs> Why do they always put you in the goal? They just they kick put the you balls in the goal you, because they? the theory is that they'll be kicking balls down at the other end, so you, you will have no use. <laughs> <laughs> and did you feel useless? You feel isolated. Mm. I think that really that's what characterised most of my sort of early to teen years was feeling quite isolated. And alone. And did you speak to your mother about that? Yes, but I think that, you know, she had the problem that she had a full-time job, you know. I mean, actually, mm. trying to manage, I suppose, other people trying to do full-time jobs with children too. <laughs> but um, mm. I think my father wanted me to be there. You've got to stay there. So I was just thinking about that because you were saying your mother had a full-time job and, you know, people thought that you would grow up in a very wealthy, you know, and 
slightly when you think of the the, the dynasty, the mm. Comran mm. dynasty, that mm. it is a bit like what's that series Succession? <laughs> Isn't a little teeny bit. <laughs> But did you feel you were growing up in wealth? I mean, you know, it is a privilege to go to boarding school, not in the way that you experienced in a lot of people, but that would have been, I suppose, funded by your father. And yet yes. you were living with your mother. Yeah. Was that a privileged life? Yes. I can't say it wasn't, but it wasn't always because her fortunes varied and there were sticky moments. I would say, though, my brother and I were slightly piggy in the middle in there relationship. In your father Terence's relationship with your mother? Yes. How did that manifest itself, though, if they weren't physically living? You just knew this, was it that there was always this... They did battle yeah. through our childhoods, which was not easy for the two of us. But I'm, I'm sitting here because, I, you know, I'm looking at you, an extraordinarily, hugely successful man, and yet this felt like a very lonely place where you were as a child. I'm looking at and thinking of little Jasper and thinking, this is this is painful. Yes, mm. I would definitely say that that was a painful time. Mm. And I did get my way through it, however. Of course you event, did. You know. And you also talked about one of the things that you said was you battled with your weight and that you actually thought being overweight, if you were a fat boy, no one wanted to know you. That was worse than being gay. Was it in 1972? I'm thinking, well, 19, you know, to who did you know who was gay in 1972? Or, I mean, to your fat I, and gay. I actually knew lots of gay people because my parents, parents yeah. knew other wonderful gay people. No, I mean, you know, I just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and, and nobody talked to me about it. This just happened with me. And I think, you know, my metabolism is different. And I did get really quite giant. And, of course, your clothes don't fit. You feel more awkward. You feel more embarrassed. You feel more upset. You feel more useless. Mm. So gradually you kind of disappear. And life is very, very miserable and unhappy. And, of course, you are the butt of people's jokes. So you were then started, you talked about this, you became anorexic and bulimic. Yes. I mean, I, I think I can understand where all this pain came from. I think you can, obviously, <laughs> know where yes. it came from. So where were you when you started to do this? I remember very clearly looking in the mirror one day and saying, enough, enough. And I basically stopped eating. I refused to eat. I wouldn't go to school dinners. It was quite interesting because I started really asserting myself mm. in a way that I hadn't, you know, I'd been rather placid and malleable before. Mm. And then I became absolutely forceful, I suppose, and stubborn. Mm. And did anyone realise? You mean you literally started to shrink away, didn't you? Yes, I lost seven stone in one year. So I halved my weight, which, looking back, I wish that I <laughs> had somebody to talk to. Um, but when you came home from school, didn't your mother go, Jasper, what's happening? 
No, I think they thought, because I was a teenager, I think that they just thought this was, you know, yeah. this natural thing that happened, yes. that, you know, that you lose <laughs> seven stone. <laughs> and the thing about it, of course, was I wasn't miserable. And I'm very, very, very lucky that it didn't go into the real extreme. Yes. I'm very, very lucky that that didn't happen. Mm. But so wonder why that didn't, though. Or do you think it was then, I mean, you felt happy because you looked at yourself and think, I'm starting to like this body and this person that's standing yes. here instead of actually feeling... When, you know, for so much of your life, you've just been embarrassed mm. and you've been in hiding and you haven't got any friends because of that and 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 mm. and life becomes a revelation you know i remember my last term at school at my prep school i started running and i ran and won races <laughs> and i did things and won and that all of a sudden this world opened up to me and that felt very good. But it was combined with, you know, an obsessive compulsive disorder. Yes, but I'm wondering also whether it came from a place of when you suddenly saw your ability to make change happen. Oh, yes. yes. Oh, I realised that yeah. I could be the master of my own destiny. I took control. I wasn't going to be trampled on anymore. I was going to be the one who could write this book. And what a book it was, because it, extraordinarily, you then moved to New York because you couldn't go to the dream school of your central St. Martin's because your father was on the board. <laughs> well, he sat me down when I was about 13 and said, now, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, I want to be a fashion designer. And he said, no. I said, yes, I want to go to Central St. Martin's and I want to go to the Royal College. You know, I had, had, I had it mapped out. Anyway, he put the kibosh on that. He wanted me to be a chef. He, <laughs> he sort of compartmentalised me into the food category. <laughs> and do you and think that was because eventually he wanted you in the business because obviously his restaurant businesses... He didn't have a restaurant business as such at the time. He had one restaurant called the Neal Street, mm -hmm. which I used to be a waiter at in my school holidays, which made me realise that over my dead body was I ever going to work in a restaurant. <laughs> no, he also had taken against Ozzy Clark, who he knew well and didn't like, and he decided that one plus one equals... Five, you know, I was definitely going to be an unpleasant person if I was a dress designer. Did he say, no, I'm not going to finance you, I'm not going to do anything? How did he stop you? I mean, what was his, when you said he put the kibosh on? Well, he told me that he was a governor of both the Central and the Royal College and that he would make sure I wouldn't get in. I think that possibly he didn't think of his children and their careers and how they would grow and blossom in the way that other parents might. I think that he rather thought that 
you know, he was used to controlling people. So I think that he thought, well, you will go there and you'll do this and you'll do this and you'll do that and that'll suit me down to the ground. <laughs> of course, that didn't work out very well for him. <laughs> because at 15 is extraordinary. You Didn't you move to New York at 15? Am I getting this right? I did. I, I went to Parsons in New York, which is part of New York University and it's an art school. And through a strange series of accidents, I ended up being accepted there. I found myself in New York. But how did you find yourself? How did that? My mother made my father fond me. Okay. He wasn't very happy about it. <laughs> so you went off there. Your mother pushed and said, leave him alone. He wants to do this. And at this time, had you come out as gay? I've always been gay. I've been gay since the day dot. So you didn't ever <laughs> so, have to say? No, or... you see, the thing I will say very, very much on my parents' behalf mm. is that they had gay friends. I was brought up mm. with gay people. I was brought up that gay was normal and gay was happy and gay was friendly. You know, I, I realise how very, very lucky I am. I think one of the great lux of my life has been that I never felt odd about being gay. And that wasn't questioned by either of my parents, mm. um, for which I'm very, very, very grateful. And, you know, I think probably one look at me aged eight and you'd have known. <laughs> <laughs> then you find yourself in New York as a teenager. You yeah. hang out with Bianca Jagger and Holston. I'm going to ask about this. And you yes. met Andy Warhol, Truman Commode. Yet you even you even had a 30-something girlfriend. What happened there, Jasper, called Carmen D'Alessio? Did you? It's Carmen D'Alessio. She's still alive and still kicking in New York. Yeah, but you were gay. And what happened there then? Did you have her as a girlfriend, girlfriend, or...? I had her as a girlfriend, girlfriend, yes. Wow. Absolutely, no question. No shadow of a doubt. But so here you were, and I'm just thinking this early part of your life, this, you know, this young, shy, overweight boy, gay, in a public school, being chucked in the goal, not finding his identity, and then suddenly, suddenly. Boom. But boom at the, you know, we're talking Warhol, Bianca Jagger. You know, what did it feel like? I mean, I didn't know anybody when I arrived in New York, and I transformed. I was a, the converse of what I had been, and very sociable as a result. <laughs> Did you feel that this is coming home into myself, that feeling of, I am no longer the misfit, I'm actually a beautiful misfit? The truth is that I did turn from sort of a lump into if I may say so, quite a beauty. Mm, no, I know. Uh, something marvellous happened is all I can say. So it's interesting, you know, so instead of being rejected all the time, it was the converse, a bit too much. Mm. And then what was interesting for me was I felt that people only wanted me for my looks. Mm. And I, I got quite upset about that too. <laughs> yes, because I guess this was your search for truth. Where am I? Here I am being, you know, adored as this beautiful young gay man in New York. And I can mm. imagine the scene. We're talking late 70s. Yeah. With the disco scene, the clubs, it would have been amazing. Gosh, yeah. I'd love to be it there. It was. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> I know. I can imagine it. And yet that search for identity is somewhere in the middle, the truth. Did you ever think you found it? Did you? Well, 
the thing I've always had is I've always known what I wanted to do. So I always had an idea of what my career would be ever since I was eight years old. So, you know, I've always had that trajectory and that thing to cling on to. And I'm still doing it sometime later. Still our boy. <laughs> so, I mean, then you, you return to London and that's when you set up your own fashion label after a period working for Bill Gibb and then Jeffrey Wallace of the Wallace Group. Jeffrey. I was thinking about that when I read that and I was like, Wallace was seen as premium high street, wasn't it? You yes. Beautifully. I remember I bought a suit in Wallace. Yeah. It was extraordinary. Somehow it didn't end up like that years later when it was bought by the Arcadia Group, but nevertheless. But it was, wasn't it? It was actually premium clothing. Yes. That I mean, Jeffrey really did. believed in what he was doing. Mm. He really loved clothes and the making of them and the details. That was one of my first jobs. Mm. And then you set up on your own. Mm. Um, you must have had the self-belief that enabled you to take that huge step. I suppose so. I mean, it was just me in a sewing machine. Well, I've got here this wonderful quote that you did. It was difficult at first because it was assumed that I was being bankrolled by my father. Yes. But if you met my father, you, <laughs> you knew that wasn't true. I did it all myself, and I'm very proud of the fact that I've kept a fashion business going for 30 years. 40 years now. 40 years. Oh, my God, obviously. <laughs> I said that is. when it was 30. Now it's 40. It's 40 years. <laughs> You dressed many people, including Princess Diana, and you gave Naomi Campbell her first catwalk show. That's true. That was an extraordinary moment. This doe-eyed beauty came through the door and, you know, everything stopped. And because she'd been taught ballet, she moved like you'd never seen anybody move before. It was a beautiful moment, and I'm very pleased have been part of her career. I want to talk to you about your love of women because so many often designers talk about their love for women, gay men, a lot of them designing for women, a lot of them at the top of the game. More and more women obviously are getting there, but there was just seems to be that there was this acceptedness that gay men understood. <laughs> Only women. gay men understood women. Well, exactly. <laughs> You've said, though, I think like a woman would in terms of when I'm designing, about practicality, ease, comfort. A woman wouldn't, unless she was eccentric, 20th century designer, Elsa Schiaparelli, make idiot clothes. Um, <laughs> Did I say that? Yeah. Well, they were a bit crazy out there, right? Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of other designers. It is unusual for a man to have such female insight. You talked about growing up among women. Your mother was a heightened feminist. I suppose it's a very simple question, but do you like women? Do you prefer women, do you think? Yes. I think that probably I felt, you know, from very early on that women were protected me and looked after me. That was a very clear demonstration. Men didn't really come into the equation. But I, you know, I've had hilarious and lovely and wonderful women, family and friends. And all my life, I've been lucky enough to have that sort of companionship with women. Mm. I think also that because I went through the things that I went through with my body, I think that I have empathy for women. When I'm making clothes, I think about, you know, how a woman's body 
changes every month, you know. And, and you talk about And I try to this. sort of make things better. <laughs> Which is exactly where great design should be. But you talked about, you thought, from your observation, women have been sold a bit of a pup. They have to be mothers, wives, have full-time jobs, be lovers. They're busy and they always feel they have to look ravishing and sexy and, 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 and. And, I'm, you know, I've always felt sorry for them. I'm wondering whether your insight comes less from being a gay man, but sometimes as that misfit who sees... And I, I look at women in society today as being within the misfit category, an awful lot of them. Mm. Because mm. often when I talk about on my social or at any time I talk about the fact that women past a certain age are pretty invisible when it comes to fashion still. We've made movements forward, and I'm, mm. and I'm not talking within how you design your collection, because I'm sure you will know that most of your money will come from women over 40. And yet somehow these women, because their currency has been around youth and beauty most of the life, women's currency, they do feel not just invisible, but actually not as beautiful as they get older. Do you feel that as well, designing for women? What I think is that you've got this two polar opposite situations. You've got fashion, which has been driven by the press and the retailers. So fashion, per se, has been a young person's thing. You know, it runs along with music. It goes hand in hand with change. And that seems to take place, has historically taken place there. So in terms of clothing for older people, you know, who don't want fashion, there's been less attention down there. And that, of course, is ridiculous because the people at this end of the spectrum are the ones that are actually spending the money, not the ones that they're designing miniskirts for. Generally, the power of men is seen with what they've achieved and what wealth they have, whereas the power in women is around beauty still and youth. That's interesting. Yes, mm. I think I would agree with you. That's mm. how we move that. It doesn't need to be wealth, but what, what the new feminine power is. But that's another discussion we'll have, Jasper. I think that, <laughs> but I think also women have a responsibility to reject situations that are being put on them. Totally. I think the reshaping of women's bodies by, of, say, the Kardashians. Yeah. I mean... Women have to reject that notion. Yes. The work, the Botox, the lips, the We're, TikTok, these young women. I mean, it's a massive issue a we nightmare. are up against. It's a nightmare. I don't know whether it's because you can go out and buy this look. You can have the bosoms put in, you can have the bottom put in, you can put the eyelashes on, you can have the, the straight lips. black hair and the lips. I mean, it's interesting because it's a, it's a look you can shop for. I find it... Very disconcerting. I'm wondering whether we've slightly gone back because I certainly didn't feel that pressure. No. Because I love to feel that the world's got kinder, which I think it has. I think. You yes, know. I definitely yeah. think, you know, I think that, you know, if you talk to a 20-year-old now, it's very different mm. from talking mm. to the 20-year-old us. Mm. 
Can we talk about Conran Holdings? Because your father, Sir Terence Conran, stepped down as chairman of Conran Holdings and you became chair in 2012. And I, rem I actually remember walking into the store and going, this is good, this is the best I've seen it. No, seriously, yes. it was stunning. The Conran store I'm talking about, for me, it was at the top of Marlborough and I walked through and I just thought, whoa, someone's got hold of this. And I didn't know that you'd gone in. And I remember finding out and speaking to the team of staff in there that also felt deeply motivated. They were talking about the designs. I remember I was looking at some chairs and there was this energy. I don't know what you did, but you did a Jasper wand. And then your father made some comments about your ability. <laughs> <laughs> I so you ended up resigning. Initially, I went in there as creative director. I was on the board of Conan Holdings. And it was not in a good shape, the Conrad shop. But I went in and I discovered that I absolutely loved working on it. I could it's see it. I could awesome. feel it. I was so shocked because I, it had never occurred to me that this was something I would ever do. And I was kind of called upon by the board to do it. But that aspect of creativity in me I didn't know existed really. Well let's talk about that aspect of creativity. Was that the physical space the aspect of creativity because it was merchandise, it was getting the right brands in, yes. you went outside Conrad yes. and you brought in others yes. you zoned the place, a little cafe at the mm -hmm. back. I mean it was my idea of a dream of a sort of micro store Yes, and we'd get anybody who was coming internationally to meet, we'd say well, we'll meet you in the Conrad shop yes. it's wonderful. So was it taking a retail space I guess and making it a wonderful immersive experience? It was a that shop in Marylebone was a place they sort of sent all the old furniture to die. So it was sort of a sale shop. And I said, look, look at this amazing street that's happening here. You know, we must make this a wonderful place. So I had a bit of a blank canvas to work on. And I just found that I got a lot of joy out of it. And I think in my joy, everybody else was getting joy. <laughs> But it was extraordinary. And then what happened, though? So talk to me. Your father made a comment. What was the comment? Well, I had put together a shop in Selfridges. So it was a concession shop mm. in Selfridges. And it had been an enormous amount of work. And I had just opened this shop. And then the next day, I opened the Evening Standard. And there is my father being critical of me. I wasn't being paid to do this work that I was doing, you know, I was doing it to help his company. And I had worked with the company for about four years and to open a newspaper and see that the major shareholder of the company that you've been working for free for is criticising you is a bit much. What was he saying though? What was he critical of? Oh, he said, I didn't know anything about furniture. I think that was the thing that really got my goat. Because <laughs> by then I knew a lot about furniture or the selling of furniture. I wonder how, how this makes you feel, though. I mean, I can imagine Jasper, the successful designer, going, what? You know, I can imagine that as a business person, but as the son. I did love my father. I want it to be clear that, you know, he definitely had his upsides that wasn't all downsides, but I have my own life. I forged my own career. I didn't need to be 
subservient. Because that was interesting. I didn't ever, to ever tell you this once, but I was sitting next to your father at dinner and we were talking and I was saying about how amazing. You'd done a collection of home as well. Yeah. And I said, amazing how, you know, what you were doing. And he went, yeah, I'm not sure I want my name plastered over those plates. Well, His my name. very beautiful plates that I did for Wedgwood, <laughs> His which name. are still selling now, 25 years later. Yes, therein lies the rub. Mm. He viewed my name as being his name. Yeah. I've always used my name, Jasper, before my surname. He made this assumption that time stood still with him owning that name, you know. That, I think, was a source of difficulty for him. My view was shouldn't have children then, should you? Yeah, because I think if I'd have been... Terence, and I saw you doing what you're doing, I'd have been very proud. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Little Jaspers running around somewhere. Debenhams made you very rich, reportedly to the tune of tens of millions, and apparently no other designer who worked with a department store made as much money. I've got a quote here where you said, I had a business with Debenhams that did £170 million a year. And that partnership dissolved and it became an online presence only. But I think we all know what happened to Debenhams after that. Mm. Um, I want to talk about this because, I mean, it was extraordinary. And, you know, you talked about democracy in fashion. I remember, (laughs) you can't get away with anything, Comrade. I remember these days. But I remember, we're talking mid-90s here, when you, with your collection, your mainline collection, and all the other British designers, you know, at the time that were your contemporaries, and, and, and bear with me on this, so you had Betty Jackson, Jasper Conran, John Rocher, so forth, all that group. Mm-hmm. It was a really tough time financially. All the international brands were coming over. This was the time of the big spend behind designer mm. labels. And I remember you thinking, shall I do this? Shall I do this? Because it was not seen to be cool to put mm. your name to a high street label. Mm. I mean, the catwalk is a is a wonderful metaphor for this. The catwalk said, I'm up there. I've got a show. Everybody copied that. So to go down into the mass was not an easy choice. And I remember this was a difficult choice for you. I have always thought that if you have a good idea and a lot of people can have it rather than very few people having it, I've always thought that that was the better way of going. Clothes are often expensive because they're made in very, very small quantities. Addresses, 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 as far as I'm concerned, you know, I prefer a thousand people had it rather than five. So if your dress, a designer dress, let's say to take a designer today, like, I don't know, let's take a Dolce & Gabbana, say. Yeah. If they made huge runs, they could easily be selling that. That product would be the same yes, as would. what you'd get in the high street. And, and the same fabric yeah, and the same detail that they'd be able to do. Pretty much. I mean, the huge amounts of money that they spend on marketing would add some but I mean really it's by volume the price is dictated by this volume you know Mm. 800 pounds there and 200 pounds there Mm. same dress 
But people think, oh, but it's the design, it's the finish, it's more exquisite. It's not, is it? No, not necessarily, no. So what I'm getting to, I suppose, is the fact that you were this catwalk designer giving your name to High Street. Oh, yes. And there was a lot of people going, oh, what is this going to be like? Oh, lots of very sniffy people. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And did you not at times, you know, think to yourself, gosh, maybe I'm going to put my reputation on the line here because I've gone out of the elitist, which was all the codes of designer that we'd all grown up with, and now I'm putting my name into a mass populist area. There was a lot of sniff, yeah. I enjoyed that challenge. I enjoyed working in that environment and enjoyed trying to make the best I possibly could for that price, which was the same designs, the same designing that I was using there, just was by terms of the volume, it was a different price. Being creative is a luxury, you said. Being able to do a thing that you love is a luxury, not a God-given right. And, you know, sometimes you have to sacrifice part of your creativity. If you want to pay your staff, you have to have sold that jacket. I've seen lots of wonderful, fantastic creative people go by the wayside because they didn't think they had to involve themselves in the realities of life. That is true. Yeah. I mean, because I started my company and I had to build it brick by brick, And, you know, I had to learn to do every single job. I had to do the invoices. I had to do deliver to the factories. I had to, you know, buy the cloth. I had to cut the cloth. I had to do all of those jobs I've done and I built my business. And I didn't have the space not to sell clothes, you know. I had to sell my clothes. They had to be bought in order that we could pay the salaries. So I've always had a rather kind of workmanlike approach to what I do, and I always realised that those clothes had to sell. They had to sell. So I've never been in a sort of fantasy world, if that makes sense. No, Uh, and I think today, now that the world we're in, you know, and we've learned a lot from that so much of what we were a part of is mm. not looking after our planet too well, you know. No. So how are you now? Well, I mean, I've always made clothes. I've always loved people saying to me, I've still got your clothes from 20 years ago and I still wear them. And it's like, yes. Yeah. I've always been proud of that. It doesn't bother me. People say, you'll you'll think I'm terrible. I think, no, I think you're marvellous. Thank you very much. I've got a Jasper Conman dress from 30 Mm -hmm. years ago. Utterly beautiful piece. So longevity, thinking Mm -hmm. about how we often we buy, what would be your messages to people now, to designers, to fashion, to the world on how we consume? Well, I think it's quite clear. You have to buy a lot less and better. And the idea that you can just have, 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 have is not one that can prevail anymore. You need to think about what you're doing and why you're doing it. And I've never liked waste. No. Ever. I cling on to my shirts (laughs) and won't throw anything away. No, it's clearly everything has to change on all levels. We've got a new collection now. Yes. uh, Wonderful. And you're looking at how you can deliver quality at a price. Exactly that. And... 
we are also looking at from an ecological point of view too, from every angle. I'd say in the last five years, the world has changed so much and in such speed. Mm. And the demands of the world are completely different. And we are obviously seeing that climate change is a real thing. So I think that that message is getting through, whether it's getting through too late or not, I don't know. But everything we do now is predicated by, is it ecologically sound? Is it ethically sound? And how does that make you feel doing that now? I mean, this is much bigger than you'd have ever had to do before. Oh, God, yeah, it's quite complicated. You know, you're striving to achieve that. You have to be quite careful you don't go around saying that you are something, yes. that you're not 100%, because nobody is there mm. properly yet. But, no, I like it. It's a challenge, you know. It's, mm. uh, it's part of what I have to design into. Mm. And do you think that we're going to see any return to manufacturing here? or Do, uh, do you know, I you? have a funny feeling we are. So yes. do I. I remember Mrs Thatcher getting rid of every factory in the land. So it was a nightmare. And I think that by virtue of all sorts of complex scenarios and issues that we are going to have down the line, I think, with certain countries... I think manufacture has to come back here. And do you think, as you say, you strive to create collections that are, you know, respectful to the environment, respectful to our planet, respectful to the people of the, who are going to be buying them from you? Mm. Do you think that and hope that, I mean, I, I, you talked about Thatcher closing down the factories. Do you think that we will then create a kinder society than the one you came into? Or that we are creating a kind of society? Yes, I think, you know, for us, if we stand back and we look at how people are treated within the workplace now, what the rules are, you know, the things that do stop people being horribly abused, which they were when mm. we started mm. working. They were, you know, it's very, very abusive. I think it is much kinder. I think as it becomes part of the ethos, yes, it's going to be better. It's it's going to be better. And the more we talk about it, the more important that becomes. Your name is obviously synonymous with good design. And I we talk about the arts. I remember years ago, I don't know why, I came round to your house and you were playing Maria Callas, La Divina, and, of course, I went out and bought it because <laughs> it was just utterly the most beautiful thing. At this stage in your life, I watch you in your beautiful country home and I can see that there's this world of glamour that you've been in the arts, that you're still in, and through all the beauty that that brings to the world. And yet I look and I'm wondering whether that when you're amongst the trees and out in nature, that actually is that where your true home is? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. I'm a country boy and that world of trees and garden and chickens and ducks is much more who I am. I mean, it's, that's always been the case, actually. I've, I've sort of had this strange scenario where my job is one thing, but who I am is the other, really. The misfit. <laughs> 
I was reading a Mary Oliver, and I just thought of you. I see where you are, and you talk about growing off vegetables and you know, the, mm. the joy that the hollyhocks have come out. Mm. And I thought, this man has to be connected to the earth in a spiritual way. This is mm. deeper. Mm -hmm. um, and I found this little poem by Mary Oliver, when I am among the trees, especially the willows and the honey locust, especially the beech, the oaks and the pines, they give off such hints of gladness. I would almost say that they save me. And daily. Mm, that's right. <laughs> Absolutely. What I love about my job is not the glamorous part of it. I love shaping clothes and cutting on the model and, and working. It's not that bit I've always found very difficult. What difficult did the front person? The front person being the PR, mm. doing the shows. There's not ever what I've liked doing. I'm more interested in the pinning and the snipping and the sewing. Craft, the, the craft. craft of, the craft of it. Your hands. Yes. That's a part I love and enjoy. And, you know, you start with an idea and it becomes something else as you're, you know, working on the model. So it's sculptural, really. Lee Edelcourt said that she thinks that the future of fashion is going to be on the farm and that actually that's where we will grow the next types of fabrics. That's where that true connection with the earth, the mother earth, um, mm. is. That's where the true beauty will come from, how we clothe, how we create. I think that the future of fabric, I'm afraid, I think it's probably going to be for mushroom farms. Mm. It will be organisms. Mm. I don't know that it's going to be as romantic as what you've just outlined. By virtue of the fact that we are going to have several billion more people on the planet and less and less and less water. I'm not sure that we is going to be as jolly as that. Do you see it as a worry? I do. Mm -hmm. I really do. Where in life or society do you think we should celebrate being different more? Oh, golly. I suppose I'm, when you talked about this and knowing you're watching you from afar, the latter mm. years, of course... I couldn't help but sort of think of Carl Jung. The world will ask you who you are, and if you don't know, the world will tell you. Mm. So I can imagine the world will tell you, Jasper, you're a designer, it's fashion, it's this world, but actually deeply, is oh, that well, Jasper Conran? Not really. <laughs> you know, I've been working since I was 16, so flat out. And then during the pandemic, I started drawing and painting and everything that I had feared, the retirement, evaporated because I was doing something that I, I really felt that I could do by myself and focus on for hours and hours and hours on end and really go down into. I think for me, there are two me's. There's one that loves that the working with other people, which I do really love working with the team. Mm. That is, I find, very, very exciting. And I love encouraging people to, you know, find their confidence and their talent. And if I'm proud of something is that I have trained a lot of people. Mm. I've given people platforms in my life. And I think that's the most interesting thing that I've probably done. But then there's the sort of insular, still, quiet me, who I had space for during lockdown. I, I had 
space to let that person out of his box. So mm. I'm quite happy being both, and I'm not frightened of having to be one. It's an interesting one. Which one would you take? I think the one where I'm by myself, I would. Mm. That being able to go into deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into my own thinking and only having myself to be involved with. It rather kind of goes against what I just said, which is that I love working in teams. I also love working by myself. But it's not even working, it's being, isn't it? It goes even deeper. Well, it's what happens when you immerse yourself in your own thoughts, which I don't think I've ever done it in the way that I did over lockdown. And it feels like you're turning over leaves and pages in a book and discovering aspects of you. You know, you're asking the questions and you find the answers. Was there any sort of spiritual connections or anything that you, through that, where you connected on a deeper I level? I mean, the way that the world stood still and the birds sang and the wildlife came out, you know, that was revelatory. You realise that not for hundreds of years had there been this kind of silence, this quietness, this lack of busyness. I found it very touching and moving to see the way that wildlife responded and the way that the plants seemed to respond, you know. Extraordinary. I'm going to find Rilke on solitude uh, because it was a massive help for me. And he talks about this. And for me, solitude for many years was like, what? There's no way I'm going to do that. You know, I was one of five kids like you, the big family. And I realised that actually that is truly by being in solitude where I deeply, deeply connected we are solitary, we can delude ourselves about this and act as if it were not true. That is all. But how much better it is to recognise that we are alone, yes, even to begin from this realisation. And he says that you should not let yourself be confused in your solitude by the fact that there is something in you that wants to move out of it. This very wish, if you use it calmly and prudently and like a tool, will help you spread out your solitude over a great distance. And he talks about sitting, sitting with it. And even through painful times, it's how you open up and you find the resource that's deeply within you. Yes, I mean, strangely, I found that resource in my solitude. Yes. I found interesting parts of me that I didn't know, that I'd kind of shut away. I hadn't delved into that place. But I went in there and I found I liked what I saw. <laughs> it's warm, isn't it? And, it's wonderful. And that, you know, it says, gives you a kind of confidence that you didn't necessarily have before. Mm. That ability to have an inner life, I suppose. And an inner life. Jasper Conran, thank you so very much. It's been wonderful. <laughs> I really you. enjoyed it. for listening and I leave you with this don't you dare 
having listened to this podcast and be inspired, think that the care of this world is always someone else's job. It's not. It's yours. Every one of your actions counts. Make it happen.